Tim Harris. I'm the pastor here at Woodburn. God bless you. Glad you're here. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Let's take a look at what Paul says this morning about the struggle with sin. Just to catch you up uh, in what we're reading today, Paul is writing Christians in the, in the city of Rome. That's why it's called Romans. Uh, the odd thing about the church in Rome is that it's mixed up with, with Jewish and Gentile Christians, Jews and Gentiles in the very same church, uh, which makes for a very interesting kind of fellowship. The Jews all, of course, were Jews before they were Christians, and therefore they lived their entire life observing the Jewish law. It's the Ten Commandments, but it's a lot more than that. For the Jews, it's, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules and laws that have been added to the Ten Commandments through all of those years. And so for them, they couldn't get past the fact that even though Christ died for their sins, they should, should still be observing and following that Jewish law. And they were more than eager to make sure that Gentiles coming to Jesus also learned to follow the Jewish law. So Paul in his ministry continues to struggle for the purity and the simplicity of the gospel. And that is simply that we're all saved the very same way. And that's by Jesus's grace, by his sacrifice for our sins. We don't earn salvation by keeping the rules, by following the law. We just receive salvation as a gift from Jesus. That's the message that Paul wants to preach. So he's trying here in chapter 7 to help, from a Jewish perspective, help explain why the law is not effective as, as a means of saving us. And basically the message is it is effective because we can't keep it, we can't follow it. If salvation depends upon my keeping rules, I am in really, really big trouble. It's just not in me. In 1886, uh, a man named Robert Louis Stevenson uh, began having nightmares. Of course, you know, he's a, he's a great author. But he began having these nightmares about himself waking up in the middle of the night. This is his dream. And he would go out into the streets and commit all kinds of despicable acts. And, and it became interesting to him, so he decided to write that into a story. He wrote the story about his own nightmares, his own dreams of getting up at night and going out and, uh, and acting as some sort of a moral monster. After he wrote the story down, he let his wife read it, which is usually a mistake, you know, if you want to be awesome. He let his wife read it, and she hated it. She didn't like the story. She didn't like seeing her husband in that way. She didn't like thinking about him having that shadow side. And so she convinced him to destroy that story, destroy that manuscript altogether. And so that's what he did. He burned it in the fireplace. But then he couldn't get the story out of his mind because he felt like it said something important. He felt like that story said something not so much about himself, but about everybody. So he rewrote the story and published it. Uh, and I think his original title was the, the, the Interesting Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Would you remember that title? You ever heard of that? Read that story? Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, when he republished, the story is a little bit different. It focused on a very good man whose name was Dr. Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll invented a potion which he could drink, and when he drank the potion, he would become, he would transform into this completely evil and despicable Mr. Hyde. So as the story goes, Dr. Jekyll would live every single day as a dutiful, good, honest, trustworthy man, and then at night he would be transformed into this evil monster with no compassion, no morals, and uh, Mr. Hyde would run through the streets and commit all kinds of violent and despicable acts. That's the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's interesting because of, of, of all the stories. This is one of those stories that really still stays in our popular culture. It stays in our minds. Psychologists study this story uh, because
because they say that it says something very important about every single one of us. And that's what Robert Louis Stevenson was trying to say from the first. That it's not just something about him or a nightmare that he has, that in one way or the other, we all sort of live this way. He's saying that I'm like two selves in one body. I am Dr. Jekyll and I'm Mr. Hyde all at the same time. Is that even possible? Well, if you read Romans chapter 7, you probably get the idea that, that Paul can relate. Paul gets this. Paul understands what it is to be a walking contradiction. And so he starts talking in Romans chapter 7. We're going to pick up in verse 15. Listen to what Paul says about living as this divided self, this walking contradiction. Verse 15, Romans chapter 7. I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. Sin living in me that does. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I hate. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me. I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind, and this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. What a miserable person I am. Who will free me? Who will rescue me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thanks be to God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind. I really want to obey God's law, but, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Stop I don't I was talking to a, a friend, a lady I've known nearly all my life. She's not a Christian. And we were talking about a mutual friend that I've also known all of my life. And she is a Christian. I'm talking to the non-Christian. And we're both speaking very, very fondly of our mutual friend. started talking about the, the Christian thing to the non-Christian. I know she's the sweetest lady. I've known her forever. And she's just always been that person. Just always a sweet, really generous, great friend. Everybody's got a friend like her. And, and, and to agree, yeah, she's great. I've known her you know, like that too. She's just the sweetest, most wonderful person. Now, again, I'm talking to a non-Christian about a Christian. So I decided this might be a moment to try to point to Christ with the conversation. So I said, you know, the best thing about her, though, is her faith in Christ. You know, I've known her forever, and, I, and I've known her as a person who really loves the Lord and really completely surrendered to Him. And the best thing about her is to hear her sing in church. And I'm not talking about any looking in this church, so don't freak out. So the best thing about her is just to hear her sing in church. She, she worships and she sings. She's a beautiful, radiant voice. 
And the best thing about it is just the way she sings in church. And again, non-Christian says, yeah, <laughs> that's probably all true. But you know what the best thing about her is? She's really funny when she's drunk. Again, I've known both these women all my life, and I've known this woman as a Christian all my life. I've never known her as a drunk. She's only known her as a drunk. A funny woman. How is that? How can one person, how can you tell two such very different stories about one, one person? How is that? Is that even possible? suggest to you one very, very important principle. There are actually two stories that will always be told of me too. Two stories that will always be told of us. It's the story of what we mean to do and the story of what we actually do. Understand? Always two stories. The story of what you meant to do. The story of what you did. Somehow I live two stories and I know I'm a pastor, and you don't want to hear me say that, but it's just the truest thing I know how to tell you. You don't know what goes on inside here. Now, if somebody like Paul is honest enough to sort of raise up the curtain and let you see, then, then it's beautiful. We're all sort of like this, but we don't let each other see that. Even right now at this moment, I'm preaching, you hear words coming out of my mouth, you see me and perceive me in a special way, but honestly, there's a lot going on inside of here you don't know anything about. Even as I preach, I'm aware of the fact that my vacation starts tomorrow and I am one sermon away from the beach. I'm thinking that. I'm also preaching, but I'm thinking that. I'm also thinking that I do believe it's still there. I believe that I have a dryer sheet in this pants leg. And it won't shake out. I've had it since early this morning. Uh, I hope it doesn't come out in the sermon. It feels stuck right here. But it's there. It's a dryer sheet right there. And I know that. I know that in my head. You don't know that. You wouldn't know that. I know that the shirt I'm wearing, I stole out of my son's closet. It's one of the wonderful things about having a son who's grown, and I've bought him nice clothes all through the years, I'm taking them back. <laughs> one shirt at a time, yeah. I know that. Do you understand, uh, there's just this inward life I have, and, and you have an, an inward life too, and, and I happen to know that it's very different behind the scenes. I happen to know that inside this skin, um, it's more complicated than, than, than what you would know. Paul says this. He, he says that I, I sort of struggled. Robert Louis Stevenson was trying to say the same thing, that inside of us, there can be like multiple selves. There is the person I present before the world. There's the person I present before you every Sunday. But there's also this despicable me. There is this other side of me, and it's the, honestly, it's the side of me that I despise. I, I, I hate that guy. Paul would say that. I'm saying that. There is this guy who sort of follows me around. He's inside my own skin, and, and I don't like him. I don't like the way he thinks. I don't like the way he talks. I don't like the way he does. And, and yet he lives inside of my skin, and, and lots of times he's the one who takes over. It's like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. I feel divided. Sometimes I feel like a walking contradiction. That lady I've known my entire life can be a radiant Christian and also funny when she's drunk. I don't understand that exactly, but at the same time, I don't understand that about her in the same way I don't understand myself. And I think Paul's trying to say this too. I don't understand myself, Paul says. 
I just don't. I just don't. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I, I, I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway, Paul says. Do you relate? Can you not identify with, with that struggle? You know about sin. You know what it is to sin. And the moment you sin, you think, my, my goodness, I never wanted to do that. What have I done? You been in that spot? Sometimes you worry that now that you've done this, you must make sure that nobody ever finds out that you've done it. And you become consumed with how to keep the secret. You know that panic? That panicky feeling of, oh my goodness, did I leave any signs? Did I leave any evidence? Will anybody know? Will I get caught? You know that feeling? And then you start promising yourself and promising God, I'll never do that again. Ne- that is the last time I'm done with that. God, I'll, I'll never do that again. Just, Lord, if you'll forgive me, I'll never do that again. I won't say that again. I won't think that again. I'll never look at that again. God, if you will just now forgive me and get me past this, I'll never do that again. Do you know what that is to make that brand new promise? I'm done with that. I'm never going back to that, that rotten, awful feeling that you have. And then you face your wife or you face your children or you face your friends at church and you're just almost afraid that it's going to be obvious somehow that they're going to know about you what you know about you. Do you know that feeling? It's, it's just absolutely miserable. And that's what Paul says. What a miserable person I am. I mean, this is absolutely no way to live. It's a horrible way to live. That, that, that feeling that you are out of control, that you can't control your thoughts, you can't control your actions, you continue to do what you don't want to do, you're never able to do the things you set out to do. It's, it's just a miserable way to live. Paul says, what a miserable man I am. He says that, but he also says something else. And, and part of I just want to go, what? When Paul says this, notice what he says. Verse 17, he, he just says, uh, if I, I don't want to do what I want to do, I end up doing the things I don't want to do. And then he says in verse 17, well, when I do these things that I don't want to do, that's not really me doing it. What? I mean, I tried that when I was a kid. Did you ever do that? My daddy would come in and say, who left my tools out in the yard? Who left my hammer in the yard? I'd go, I didn't. Wasn't me. Well, who do we think did it, mama? I mean, understand? Is this what Paul is doing? He's, listen, if I end up doing these things, I don't want to do it. Ain't me. That wasn't me. You've tried this too. You ever sent that email that you wrote in anger and you never should have pressed send and then you press send? And then all you think is, oh no, now she's going to read that. And so you call her up and say, listen, you're going to get an email from my inbox, but, but that's not really me. That's not how I feel. I really wouldn't say those things. What? Didn't you type it? It sure looked like you sitting at the keyboard. Understand? But this is what we do. That, that's not me. That wasn't me. That's not really me. Pastor, when you heard me say those words, that, that wasn't really me talking. Really? Because it sure looked like your lips moving. Not me. Paul says, you know, when I do these things, I want to do, that's not really me. He says it twice. Verse 20, I'm not really the one doing wrong. Yeah, Paul, we've all tried that. What is he saying, though? 
Paul isn't denying responsibility. He's not trying the trick you tried when you were a kid and you tried to act like that wasn't really you, and then they rolled the tape, you understand, and then it's obvious that it's you. He's not denying responsibility. He's trying to acknowledge this contradiction within himself. Paul says, I I hate doing wrong, and I don't want to do wrong, and I decide in my head that I'm not going to do wrong, but I end up doing wrong, and when I do wrong, that's not exactly me. It is sin that's in me. You get that? It's, It's sin in me. For Paul, and this is really the wisdom of this passage, it'll help you if you understand this. Paul wants you to understand that sin is power, and it is more powerful than you are. Sin is power. You and I just think of sin as the little things we do wrong, and we don't even call it sin. We'll call it mistakes or accidents or, you know, just unfortunate event. We hesitate to call it sin. Paul will call it sin. But he doesn't just think of sin as the the, the list of bad habits he has. For Paul, sin is power. It's a power that lives inside of him. It goes much deeper, and it goes beyond just the things that he does that are unfortunate. It's a power inside of him, and it causes this battle, this struggle, this incredible war within himself. And and, and essentially, it is a power that is more powerful than Paul is. It's a power that is more powerful than you are. You can't win this. You can't win it. That's why Paul says, "I, I know that nothing good lives in me. He knows that. And he goes on to say, I I know what is good. I know the law. I know what I set out to do. I know the things I've said I'll never do again. I know. The problem is not that I don't know to do right. The problem is I lack the power to do right. I want to be a better man. I lack the power to be a better man. I just can't do it. It's a lack of power. Do you understand? That's why Paul ends up describing himself as a slave to the sin that leads to death. He's a slave. You understand? It is not that he doesn't know right from wrong. He lacks the power to do what is right and avoid the things that are wrong. This problem that Paul describes is your problem and my problem. Have you not lived the very same story? You try to do better. You promise that you're going to do better. You never end up doing better. Don't you understand? If you could have fixed this, you would have already fixed it. If you could break those habits on your own, you would have already stopped. You're powerless. I'm powerless too. Paul was powerless. That's why ultimately all he can say is what a miserable man that I am. Who's going to rescue me? Who's going to set me free? In other words, I I am hopeless. The only hope I have is that somebody from the outside comes and does for me what I can't possibly do for myself. Who's going to rescue me? And then that's the good news. He comes back in verse 25 with, with just praise. All he can say is, thank God. Thanks be to God. I mean, here's the answer. Thanks be to God. Who's going to rescue me? The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what does Jesus do for me? This is important. What does he do for me that makes the difference, that, that somehow breaks me out of this cycle of Jekyll and Hyde, Jekyll and Hyde? How does Jesus rescue me from this body of death? 
Well, it's not like what happens at church. Let's just say that. It's not like that. Sometimes we figure that what happens at church is what Jesus does, but honestly, sometimes what happens at church isn't anything like what happens with Jesus, and this is one of those instances. When you come to church, often the message you hear is you need to be better. You need to do better. You need to clean it up, sister. You need to quit being so funny when you're drunk, brother. You understand? This is our message. You need to come to church more. You need to pray more. You need to read your Bible more. You need to share Christ with total strangers more. You need to give more money to missions. You need to be a better husband. You need to be a better wife. You need to be a better parent, better employee. You need to do better, do more. You know, this is how we do each other. And let me just ask you, is that helping Does it help just to be told over and over and over, you need to do better, you need to do more? I'm a runner, kind of. I've been running for like 26 years. I'm a runner. I run not because I'm a good runner. I'm I'm not. I am horribly slow. I'm going to be 50 years old pretty soon. Uh, I'm horrible. I don't run because I'm fast. I don't, I don't run because I look good in shorts. I mean, I don't run for any of those reasons. I run because, honestly, I enjoy running. But when I run, I don't make it look easy. I make it look hard. People out in, in the country roads will stop and offer me rides. No, that's not a joke. I mean, I must look like I'm dying. I mean, do you need help? And I'm good. I just look like I'm dying. Occasionally, I'll run a race. Now, when I say, you know, it's like run a race, I'm not racing. I know there are fast guys who will win this thing. They'll never see me. I'll never see them. I mean, I, I run a much different sort of course. But I enjoy that. I enjoy getting out. I enjoy running down the streets. I enjoy the, the, the fun and, and party of, of, of a big race. So I, I run big races. Uh, again, I, I come in last. It's, it's just me. The thing about races, though, they shut down the streets, and you'll end up running by people in their yards, and, and they'll come out in their lawn chairs and watch you run. And usually they'll try to encourage you or something. But I remind you, by the time I come by, a lot of people have gone by. And the races, I mean, they're opening the streets back up by the time I come. You understand? I'm just telling you, I'm slow, and I make it look hard. And, and I remember one day in Bowling Green, I was running a race, and, and I was doing pretty, honestly, I was hurting. Uh, I, I thought I was about to meet Jesus. I mean, it was just that sort of thing. I was really struggling. I needed water. I needed oxygen. Uh, but I was going to finish that thing. I wasn't going to quit. So I was running by this guy, and he was sitting out in a lawn chair with a honey bun and a red Solo cup. Okay? And I come by, and he looks at me. He doesn't know me, but I've got a number on. It's like 149 or something. He says, hey! 149, run fast, run fast, yeah, I think he was trying to encourage me, but that day it just hit me wrong, (laughs) understand, with his honey bun and his red solo cup, run fast, I didn't, but what I want to do is just stop and go, sir, what do you think the problem is here, that I just forgot to run fast? I mean, did I just forget to run fast? You think I just got out here and, and forgot to go fast? This is as fast as it goes. I, I mean, seriously, this is it. This is all I got. You can tell me to run fast. It won't speed me up at all. This is all I got. And don't you feel that way sometimes at church? Don't you feel that way sometimes with other Christians? 
It's just like we all get together and go, you run fast. You need to do more. You need to do better. And don't you ever just want to say, listen, this is all I got. This is all I got. Do you think the problem is that I just forgot to be a better man? Think the problem is here that I just forgot that I was going to try not to gossip? You think the problem is I just don't know? So if you want to talk about how Jesus rescues you, you must not imagine that all Jesus does is, is, is get inside your heart and then tell you to be better and do better. You need to do more. Because Jesus, of all people, knows that the problem is not that you don't know to do better. The problem is that you don't have the power to do any better. You can't be any better. That's why you need Jesus. Understand? So Jesus comes to do for you what you can't possibly do on your own. Jesus comes to give you what you do not have, and what you do not have is power. Understand? It's power that you lack, and it's power that Jesus brings. What a miserable person I am. Who will rescue me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's power. He gives power. So how do I, how do I make that kick in? Paul's a believer when he writes this, and we're mostly Christians reading this. It shouldn't be that we live these lives slaves to sin. And that's the contradiction. That's the Jekyll and Hyde problem. That's the hypocrisy that we struggle with. It's a contradiction. That we can't possibly practice what we preach. It's, it's frustrating. Honestly, some of us, it, it drives us nearly crazy. So if Christ has already given me this power, how does that kick in? How do I begin to live a, a victorious life? How do I not live as a slave to sin if Jesus has already exercised power over sin on my behalf? Well, it's not going to happen by me trying harder, I'll tell you that. This is all I got. Not going to happen for you by me just getting up every Sunday and saying, you need to run faster, do more. I, I don't know that that's going to help you. Our answer, all of us, our, our answer is Jesus. I think somehow, one way or the other, as Paul would say, I've got to die. If there's a Jekyll Hyde thing going on inside this skin, that means Jekyll and Hyde, they got to die. I, I really do want to be free of, of, of that despicable me, you understand? And, and what Paul says is beautiful. He says, I, I have been crucified with Christ, so it's really no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. That's the answer. I need to die, and Jesus needs to live in me. He's got power, I don't. How does that work? I mean, to say I've got to die, that's spiritual language, obviously. What am I saying? Well, it means that, that, that Jesus has to have control. That I've got to die. In other words, I, I'm not the one doing the thinking. I'm not the one doing the acting or even the choosing. That, that I want to, to disappear completely into Christ. So... So there are thoughts that I have that I ought not have, and the trick for me is to give Christ those thoughts before they become anything else, to try to kill those thoughts while they're there. And it's very difficult, but Christ makes that possible when I, 
when I have his mind, when I, when I pray and ask him to let me think his thoughts. And I give my thoughts to him. It starts right there. For many of us, our, our private rebellion is our thoughts. The fact that we don't say what we think or we don't always do what we think, we imagine that therefore our thoughts are okay. We, we don't acknowledge it. For a lot of us, our, our thoughts are, are, are not just the roots of the sin. Some of us, thoughts are the sin. I give my thoughts to him. I have to surrender my mind to him and my feelings. A lot of what I do, I do because I do according to how I feel. And I don't even stop to ask myself, is it right? Is it wrong? Does it please Christ or not? I just act or, or react. And, and I so often regret what I've done because I acted out of anger or I acted out of fear. I, I just got to give him my feelings and, and I can't live according to my feelings. That, that part of me has to die so that Christ can live in me. This is so easy to follow my feelings or my thoughts, but I've got to follow Christ. He, he brings that power to me, but I've got to continue surrendering to that. And it's, I can't even say a daily basis. For me, it's, 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 it's nearly moment by moment. My, my, my thoughts, my feelings, and my choices when I choose, I, I've got to understand that, that, that I make choices. Sin has power over me, but still I can never say I'm not responsible. I can never say I didn't have a choice. I always choose. And, and I need Jesus' power that I will choose every single time to, to follow him. That, that power is not in me. It's, it, it's from him. So who's going to rescue me, Paul says. Thanks be to God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And on purpose I took you into chapter 8 because you just always got to go to Romans chapter 8. Everything good in the whole Bible is in Romans chapter 8. That's probably a stretch. But, but Romans chapter 8, it's all in there. It's really good. Just get these first verses. So now, Paul just said this whole thing about this struggle, this whole Jekyll and Hyde thing, and then he totally turns a corner. He says, thanks be to God. The answer is Jesus Christ our Lord. So now. Now, there is no condemnation, no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit of Christ in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. It's, it's beautiful. No condemnation. I want to show you two words here. The first one, the word Paul uses here, condemnation. He says when you're in Christ Jesus, there's none of this, no condemnation. What is Condemnation. Condemnation is, is to be condemned. So we're talking about to be judged guilty, to, to be placed under guilt, to be placed under punishment, to be placed under shame. Condemnation has everything to do with your sin, with your transgression, has everything to do with judgment, everything to do with what you've earned, what you deserve, and we all deserve condemnation. And Paul says when you're in Christ Jesus, there is none. No condemnation. That means that I don't live guilty, I sin. I sin just like you sin, but I don't have to live guilty. I don't live under that condemnation because Christ has already taken my punishment. There's no punishment waiting me. Only mercy, only grace, only forgiveness. I don't deserve that. It's why he's such a wonderful savior. It's why I live my life in gratitude to him. I deserve condemnation, but Paul says there isn't any now. Because what Christ has done, I, I love this. I've lived this story of the struggle with sin, the, the, the feeling that there are two different people living inside me fighting it out. But, but that's not the end of the story for me. Now I live a life without condemnation, no guilt, no judgment. It's all grace. 
There's another word here, though. I want you to see this one. It's conviction. Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit, and these are not the same, same thing at all. To, to be convicted means to be shown my guilt, to be shown my sin, and the Holy Spirit does this for me as a favor. You see? The Holy Spirit in my life, because he wants me to become more like Christ, the Holy Spirit will convict me of my sin, and I feel convicted. Usually in the very moment of sin, immediately I feel that pain. I feel that conviction. I feel the Holy Spirit showing me my sin. Now, it's not condemnation, it's conviction. The purpose of the Holy Spirit convicting me is not to make me guilty. It's not to make me ashamed. There is none of that in Christ Jesus. The purpose is for me to see my sin, acknowledge it, repent of it, receive forgiveness, and move on. It's the act of sanctification. It's the act of becoming more like Christ. And this is healthy. This is good. There's something badly broken in you as a Christian if you do not feel convicted when you sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. But these are not the same thing. The Holy Spirit convicts me, but in Christ there is no condemnation. I don't live under this cloud of guilt. That's the difference, really. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit points out my sin, and the Holy Spirit points out my sin in, in, right on target. Names, dates, and places, it's, it's particular, you understand? I know what he's showing me, I know what I've done, and I know how to confess it to the Lord. It's conviction. The Holy Spirit does that very pointedly. Condemnation is more the work of the devil in my life and yours. It, it's not particular. It's not that feeling that I've done something wrong. Condemnation is that cloud that settles over your life that, that just makes you feel like not that you've done something wrong, but that you are wrong. You understand? Not that you've done something shameful, but that you are, are shameful. This is horrible burden and shadow of guilt and shame. And honestly, a lot of you live with that. The trap is the more guilty you feel, the more dirty you feel, the more unworthy you feel, you'll just go seeking out more guilty and dirty and unworthy things to, to, to just confirm for you what you already believe about yourself. This is not the Christian life. You've been set free. You've been forgiven. Jesus has done something amazing for you that you could have never done for yourself. You don't deserve it. You'll never deserve it. All you can do is receive it and then live and walk victoriously in it. Who will rescue me, Paul says. Thanks be to God, it's Jesus. You know the end of the story, right? It's Jekyll and Hyde. You read it? Dr. Jekyll, by day, is a dutiful, good man who tries so hard to control Mr. Hyde, who continues to come and transform and take over. As the story progresses, Dr. Jekyll loses control, and eventually Mr. Hyde completely takes over his entire life. Completely unwilling and unable to live that way. He takes his own life in his laboratory. They find him dead. So if you take that whole story of Robert Louis Stevenson, Jekyll and Hyde, it just confirms what Paul says all along, that, that sin inevitably leads to death. It just does. It leads to death. 
But Paul says it for himself and truly for all of us in Christ Jesus. The end of the story is different. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. It is a miserable, miserable thing to struggle with the sin in my life. And I know you know what that is. You know how it is to struggle yourself. There's something true when Paul is honest enough to describe his struggle. I think we've all been there. We know what it is to just want to do better, and we can't. Of all things, the secret is just to quit trying, because you can't. You have to let Christ live in you. All that you try to do for yourself will only lead to failure and death, ultimately. But when you surrender to Christ, there's a new strength. There's a new power. There is a different end of the story for you. It's no longer just sin and sin and sin and then die. It is, it is to know Christ and live. Christ sets you free to live. Live. Pray with me. Lord, because we all are in the same boat, we all know sin. We know failure. We know regret. We know how it is to do things that people will never forgive us for. We know what it is to do things that will forever seem to define us. We know what it is to feel ashamed to tell the truth. We, we know what it is to want so desperately to be a better person, but to fail every single day. We know what it is to want to do better and continue, Lord, to do less. Lord, we live that story. Help us, Lord, to live the other story, the story of being set free, the story of power, the story of victory over sin. Lord, we confess that this power inside of us, it continues to drag us down. It is stronger than we are, and we can't fix ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't make ourselves better. If we could do that, Lord, we would already be much better. We can't. We won't. We never will. Lord, you know we need rescue. So, Lord Jesus, rescue us, all of us struggling this morning, all of us who feel so guilty and condemned. Lord Jesus, will you tell us that we're not guilty anymore in such a way where we'll learn to believe it? Will you show us the power of mercy and grace and forgiveness in our lives? Lord Jesus, will you show us that you have set us free from slavery to sin so that we can live the life that you've given us to live? Lord Jesus, will you show us that we are free to live differently? It sounds nearly too good to be true. Maybe we need even power to believe. Help us, Lord, to believe and receive and be changed for good. We need this so desperately. We can't do it without you, Lord Jesus. So, Lord Jesus, rescue us and thank you. I pray for all those in this house, Lord, who struggle, all those in this house who seriously need the change that only Christ can bring.
Oh, Jesus, will you make us ready, eager, and willing to change? And then, Lord Jesus, will you give us the power? We pray these things in the holy, precious name of Jesus. Amen. I want to give you a chance to respond if you'll stand together and sing. Altars open if you wish to come and pray. If you have a public decision to make, I'm at the front to receive you. If you have a physical need for healing, deacons will meet you over by the baptistry to pray for you like the Bible says. Whatever your need, Jesus is here. You can't do it without him. Come and let him do it with you as we sing. Yeah.
introduce to you Matt Powell. His wife is Courtney. They're here in the front. Uh, I want to, uh, Matt Powell grew up in our church, so he's not a new face for some of you. For others, I know you're meeting him for the first time. Matt and Courtney have gotten married. They're off at Southern Seminary and about to embark on an, an amazing adventure uh, in missions. I want them to tell you about what they're doing, and then I want us to pray for them. This is Matt and Courtney Powell. Matt. Thanks, Tim. Uh, like Tim said, uh, me and Courtney have been married for um, a little over two years now. And uh, shortly after we got married, we began just praying about what God uh, was calling us to do next. And um, as we began praying, we realized that we both wanted to serve overseas. And um, we were actually a couple weeks away from beginning that process. Um, we will be going with the International Mission Board um, as journeyman. It's a two-year program uh, to South Asia. And so that starts in a couple of weeks for us. We'll go out and begin training here soon. Um, but when I say South Asia, you probably really aren't um, sure what I'm talking about. So just uh, for some clarification, South Asia includes Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, Nepal, India, Sri Lanka, Bhutan, and the Maldives. Um, and just kind of some information about South Asia. Um, it has a total population of 1.6 billion people. So it is one of the largest people group um, that the International Mission Board is serving right now. Um, there in South Asia, there are 1,622 people groups, with 1,319 of those being unreached. So South Asia is definitely the greatest concentration of lostness on earth. Um, and so once we began the process of trying to figure out where we wanted to go, we, we had no, no clue where we wanted to go. Um, me and my wife both have lived in Kentucky our whole lives. And we began praying about where we wanted to go, where the Lord was calling us. And um, during that process, it was just evident that South Asia is really, really where we wanted to go. Um, there is just a huge need. And uh, Tim's sermon this morning is just a great reminder. These, these people um, have no hope. They, they, they don't know uh, who Jesus is. And uh, we're just excited about having an opportunity to be able to share um, that with them. Um, and so just... With that, we are wanting to partner with uh, Woodburn Baptist Church. We um, need your all's prayer. Um, every day is going to be a new day for us, and every day is going to have a new struggle. Um, we, Like I said, we are from Kentucky, and we're being planted right into South Asia. We've, I've never been overseas before, so for me, there's just a lot of new things I have to learn. And uh, we really need your all's prayer. Um, we will continue to keep you all updated, uh, continue to keep Tim updated on the specific needs, specific things that you can pray for specific people to pray for while we're there. Um, a lot of work we'll be doing is working with churches that are already established there. Um, they'll be meeting in homes. Um, we'll be um, doing other church plants and discipleship and stuff like that. So we're really, really excited about the process. And like I said, the most important thing for you all, for us, would be to pray for us. Uh, we'll be out in the foyer with prayer cards. It's going to have a link for a blog that you all can get, um, kind of see what's going on. We'll also have a list that you can fill out and put an email on so we can give you like monthly updates. And just kind of a side note, um, just for security reasons, that's why we're calling it South Asia. Um, don't post anything on Facebook about, you know, the powers of being missionaries or anything like that. Uh, the best way to stay in contact with us will be through the blog site and the uh, email address. So. Very good. Uh, Matt, Courtney, we love you guys so much. Matt, you're at home. Uh, this is your home church. Uh, we're so proud of you. And excited for what God's going to do with you, and we want to pray. So stop right now. Let's pray for Matt and Courtney. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for the way you raise up uh, people all the time to do your work. We thank you, Lord, for these two, for Matt and Courtney. Lord, we love them with full and grateful hearts. Lord, we have seen you at work in their lives uh, as you've raised them up, Lord, and brought them to this point. And Lord, we just know that you're going to use them to do something so important for Southeast Asia. 
God, just bless them. Go before them. Lord, I pray that you will just put the gospel inside of them in such a way where it will radiate from their mouths and from their lives. Lord, I pray that they will find favor both in your eyes and the eyes of those with whom they will work. I pray, Lord, that you will make these years so productive. I pray, Lord, that you will advance the gospel in a place that desperately needs to hear good news. And, Lord, I pray that you will go all the way with Matt and Courtney, that you'll bless them there, and that on the day that you appoint, Lord, you will bring them back home, Lord, to us and all those who love them and pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love them. We thank you for your mission in the world. And, Lord, we ask you in all ways and in all places to send us, Lord. We will go for you. Thank you, Lord, for Matt and Courtney and their obedient hearts. Now bless them in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. If you will promise to pray for Matt and Courtney during their mission, uh, if you promise to pray, indicate by saying amen. Amen. And we promise we love you guys. God bless you. Uh, Thank you so much. Brother Warren. Remind you that our Creek baptism comes up in just a few weeks on July 27th. Uh, If you'd like to participate and be baptized on that day, please let Brother Tim know so we can make up preparations for that. And I encourage you to uh, put, already put on your calendar and plan to be a part of that. Also, our night of worship is uh, next Sunday night at 6 p.m. And I encourage you to come uh, and, and, and participate in that as uh, folks will be sharing uh, during that time. And then tonight is our Haiti mission trip report and evening worship. And Aaron Frazier will be speaking. And so I encourage you to come back uh, tonight to hear about uh, the report from our, our, our Haiti uh, mission team. Also, uh, the back-to-school bash and block party at Lost Circle is another missions opportunity, and it's uh, uh, there in your bulletin, details there, and, and encourage you to uh, uh, contact uh, Josh and Katie Graves if you can, uh, can help in that way in any way. Uh, let's stand as we're dismissed in prayer. And uh, uh, also, uh, uh, this past week, Rod Ellis celebrated one year of being on church staff here, so let's show our appreciation for him. Joe Cox is going to come and close our service this morning in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for another beautiful Sunday, another chance to come together and worship. We thank you for this message. Help us, Lord, on this weekend when we're thinking about freedom to remember this greatest freedom, the freedom from the power of sin, the freedom from the power of death, the freedom through the power of Christ for all things. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Oh